It is good to be home. It is so good to be back with you on a Sunday morning. Um, it's good to be back in Ecclesiastes. I want to say a personal thank you to Josh, Dave, Jason, and John who filled the pulpit so capably, absolutely. Um, I'm working my way through those messages and have been edified with every single one so far. So thank you guys for not just preaching uh, and spending the time to do the study and prayer, but just for your heart for each member of this church and those that come in the doors every Sunday. And thank you again, not just for your gift of teaching, but for your love as well. We're back in Ecclesiastes, um, the book that is very real. (laughs) And like I said, when we started this book, Uh, Proverbs kind of gives us the idea that if you live like this and do this, there's blessing that tends to follow that type of living. If you live foolishly and unwisely, uh, there's typically difficulty and pain and sorrow and even judgment that comes after living that way. So generally, if you are wise, there's going to be blessing there. And Ecclesiastes is the wisdom book that says, yeah, but that doesn't always work either. Life is hard and difficult. Life under the sun is difficult and hard. And Solomon's very honest with the difficulties. He gives us some exhortations all throughout the book. Life is difficult. It's hard. It's hard to grasp. It's hard to be satisfied with. It's brief. So while you're here, enjoy the gifts God has given you, knowing that He will one day vindicate the righteous. Everything is done within eyesight of Him. But just know that this life isn't easy. And I heard one teacher, as I was thinking through Ecclesiastes on our time away, heard one teacher say that Ecclesiastes can be in many ways a challenging book, um, kind, of, kind of a downer of a book. And he, uh, this teacher, had someone in his congregation who was going through a, a rather large trial in her life, and he was so concerned about how she'd feel with so much maybe despair talked about from the book. And he came up to her after one of the messages in Ecclesiastes and just said, I want to know how you're doing. How are you handling what the Word of God is saying? And she said, it's so refreshing because it's so honest. And that was a comfort to her. And I think you all understand that. The Bible isn't some fanciful fairy tale. The Bible gives us certainly sweet hopes and promises about the future, but it also is very real to us, and our Savior knows that. So this is a gift to us. I said before, um, I think a good picture uh, to give you, a mental picture to give you of of this book is where we were kind of looking out to the horizon. Uh, I want to grab this from the world, that from the world. I want to do this and that. I've got these plans. And this book kind of puts your head down and says, yeah, but those things often don't work. And pursuing these things don't last. And it kind of puts your head down. But Solomon's writing not to leave it there, but to pick it back up again beyond the horizon and up to heaven and to realize God is the judge. He's faithful. I will be okay. So through this passage here, Ecclesiastes 4, 7 through 16, we learn that sometimes difficulty comes because of our isolation, our independence, our being alone. And here in this passage, Solomon's going to teach us that two are better than one. And that's the title of the text this morning, two are better than one. So let's read Ecclesiastes 4, 7 through 16. 
Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself or pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Two are better than one. I don't know if any of you have ever seen the show Alone. It's a fascinating show. They drop off maybe 12 people in some remote location. They're all kind of separated, so they're literally alone. And they get 10 items with which to survive with. And they, the prize for all of that is $500,000. And so a lot of people with families, men, women, who are great at surviving, take on this task to go and be alone for the sake of their families who they can then provide even more for if they win the prize. And it's so fascinating that the reason most of them have to, have to end the, the competition and whoever's the last one ends up winning, the, the reason most of them have to, have to get out is because of the feelings of loneliness and the missing their family. Now, they go into it saying, I can be alone for the good of my family. And then as they're without their family, $500,000 isn't enough to keep them from their family. They need their family. Well, that show just points to a way that God has made us. He's meant us to be together. Do you remember in Eden, everything was perfect? And God looks at man and says, it's not good. Whoa, 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 hold on a second. We're in perfection here. What's not good? It's not good for man to be alone. So even in a perfect world, it's not good to be alone. Now imagine a world that's cursed like this. How much more do we need one another? And Solomon realizes that, and he looks at people who have been alone in this life and says that is not the way to live. He starts off that way in the first paragraph, actually in verses seven through eight, and he shows the first problem, success while alone brings sadness. There's this person that's got all the success, pursues wealth, but does it alone, and Solomon's conclusion is that this is an unhappy business. And then, this is a three-part sermon, the, the second part is actually the solution. So you got a problem, solution, problem. Problem, success while alone brings sadness, and then the solution, two are better than one, and he says it that way. And then you come to another problem, and there's this confusing passage about a youth and a king, and what in the world does that mean? Hold on, we'll make sense of that, okay? But it's another problem, and the problem is 
There's a success together. There's a certain success that comes with a wise youth counseling a king who doesn't understand everything. Think Daniel. Think Joseph. There's some success that happens. There's a blessing that comes to the people. And then the youth rises up, and and he's known. He's appreciated for his wisdom. But then what happens? One day, the people forget him, and it's all vanity, striving after wind. So we'll go through the passage and show that Solomon's trying to communicate two are better than one. Two are better than one. So for our outline, we'll see two problems associated with being alone and the solution. And the solution comes in the middle. Think of a problem sandwich with the solution in the middle. Problem number one, success while being alone. Success while alone brings sadness, verses seven to eight. So we're introduced to a person who pursues riches, pursues wealth, but is never satisfied and doesn't even think to ask, who am I doing this for? Isn't even thinking about the people that maybe God would have put in his life. He's just driven, doing his thing. And then Solomon concludes, this is an unhappy business. There will be a point in time where this man sitting on his leather chair in the living room with the marble floor with the bearskin rug by the fireplace overlooking the ocean is sitting there alone and not happy. Verse 7, again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil. You know in the Bible having an heir is important. Having children and passing on blessings is important. Well, this man has no son. Maybe he's too busy for kids. He wants, to, he wants to get all he can out of the world and kids will just get in the way. I don't know what the circumstances are, but Solomon's looking at a person without a son or even a brother. Could that be maybe a friend? Could it be an actual brother? Don't know. The point is this man's alone. He's alone. And it doesn't seem to matter to him throughout his life. Yet there's no end to all his toil. He works hard and harder and harder and harder. Why? Well, similar to the man in chapter four, verse four, just a few verses ahead, He's trying to gain. He's jealous for gain. He's a consumer. He wants more from this world. So he's working hard at getting, and people nearby or close to him aren't his priority. He's going to get all he can, and that will satisfy him, except it won't. His eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is a vanity and an unhappy business. This man doesn't seem to care. But Solomon says it's an unhappy business. Evidently, one day he will care. He will see himself as maybe financially wealthy, but relationally in poverty. This is the person who works and works and works to provide wonderful experiences for himself and maybe even for his family So he may even have a family, but he's distanced himself from them because of his work. He's isolated himself because of his work. He's always gone. He's alone. Maybe thinking that it's just temporary and one day he'll enjoy all of this with others. But for now, he must work and be away. Then at the end of his life, when everything is stripped away, he lays on his bed, maybe sick, And his grown children 
aren't close to him. They're not there because they've never been close to him. When there was a problem, someone else stepped in. When they needed help and advice, someone else was there. When they wanted some support and encouragement, wanted their dad to notice, someone else was there. So this man may be laying sick in a canopy bed with servants around, but he's got no one close. He's got no lasting and deep friendships. The greatest financial portfolio in the world can't make him happy. Being alone is a problem in the Bible. It's not commended, and it doesn't satisfy. Think of our Lord's teaching in Luke 12. Luke 12, the pursuit of money and wealth and stuff. And it's interesting, he tells a parable, but it's interesting the context of the parable. In Luke 12 and verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, even notice that and its connection to Ecclesiastes. There's someone that wants his wealth and his brother's in the way. He's pursuing wealth and satisfaction and someone relationally near him is an obstacle. So he will distance himself from his brother to get more. There's connection there. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, now Jesus turns to the whole crowd, be careful. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. This guy's going to be happy with his bigger barns and all of his goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be married. Notice this man thinks that if he has more, he will be satisfied. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Success, while being alone, brings sadness. So let me ask the question. Are you striving for wealth, success, popularity, followers, influence to the detriment of relationships that God has put in your life. Consider your commitment, your love for, your closeness to family, friends, church. Are those things temporarily in the way so that you can have what you want? When I can have my vacation home and my third car, then I'll really pour into church life. When I can get financial security then I'll be present for my family. So it's good to take our hearts through these verses and say, is this me in any way? One writer said this, don't envy the fool's paradise here. Don't look at the seven-car garage and the Lamborghinis and say, oh, that'd be nice. Don't envy the fool's paradise here. It has hell at the end of it poignantly said.
So the first problem Solomon's giving us in this passage is that is the sadness of pursuing wealth alone. Success while alone brings sadness. But then he provides a solution in the middle of the passage. Second point, here's the solution, two are better than one. And he says it very clearly in the passage, verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. There's benefit when two work together more than if one simply works. They've got a reward. Something good comes out of working together. For if they fall, and he's going to give three reasons, three examples of the benefit of two being better than one. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow. If there's one that stumbles, falls, you could think of this even spiritually, physically. You don't want to be out in the wilderness alone and have an accident, no one to help. If you're out in the wilderness and there's an accident and someone's with you, they can pick you up. They can bring you to safety. They can care for you. That's not just a physical reality. It's also a spiritual reality. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him, it's a strong word, woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, now he gives a second example of the benefit of two being together. If two lie together, they keep warm. So oftentimes, whether you're engaged in some commerce or there's simply the need to travel to to another village or to see other extended family for some reason, in this culture, the the traveling didn't just happen quickly. There's no cars, obviously, so a lot of times the journey would take some time. And sometimes it would have to be when the weather turned bad. And so this person is with another and the, and the weather turns bad, it's cold, and so they've got to huddle up together. They've got to stay together, keep warm together. They're desperate. The fact that someone else is there brings a certain comfort and help. If two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Next, third example. And though a man might prevail against one who's alone, so again, picture a journey. You take the journey alone, and someone comes to seek to grab your food, grab your goods, grab your money, whatever you're traveling with. Well, if there's someone else with you, the two of you can overtake that person. Pretty simple to understand. And though a man might prevail against one who's alone, two will withstand him. So the benefits of not being alone here. This is the solution in the passage. Two are better than one. And then... Solomon seems to indicate that it's not just that two are better than one, but having more people around you is even better than that. A three-fourth accord is not quickly broken. So yes, two are better than one, but even more is helpful. And now I know some of you are thinking, isn't that a marriage passage? No, no, that, that's what you were told at your wedding. Now there can certainly be application there, Right? It's better for us to be together than alone. Absolutely true. But Solomon's not all of a sudden making a marriage point. He's just saying, in general, two are better than one, and even more is better than that. Think of Solomon saying in Proverbs, there's wisdom and safety in a multitude of counselors. That's what he's getting at. More is better than isolation. Two are better than one. Again, Genesis 2.18, the Lord looking at the wonderful creation, looking at man, everything's perfect, but it's not good that man's alone. God has determined that we would be blessed, helped, 
cared for, provided for, lifted up, warmed, protected when we've got others around us. So I'd ask you the question, friend, how can you lift up, comfort, and protect your family? Think about that. Again, sit with the text tomorrow. Now you're going to know what it means. Take some time, sit with it. Ask yourself, how can I lift up, comfort, protect my family? Is there any way I'm falling short? Can I bring that to the Lord, have Him forgive it, and then continue to change you, to be a blessing to your family? How can you lift up, comfort, protect your family? How can you lift up, comfort, protect your friends? Are there friends who need lifting up? They've stumbled physically, spiritually, and you can be there to help lift them up. Brother, sister, I know you've fallen. I know you were unfaithful. I know that you went through a difficulty because of what you determined to do. How can I help you? I'm here to help. How can you lift up comfort, protect your friends? How can you lift up comfort, protect people in your local church, in this church, if you're part of Canyon Bible? This is one of the things we're made to do, to help care for one another. Do not believe the lie that you will be able to thrive in isolation. Do not believe the lie that you will be able to thrive in isolation. And I say this as a natural introvert. My wife makes fun of me because when I was single and teaching, I'd have summers off and I would just go on a trip to New York all by myself. And some of you are like, how in the world can you do that? I don't know, just strange. But even on those trips, I realized I don't like this. <laughs> I think I like it, but, but I want to be around some friends. We're not made to enjoy alone and thrive alone for a long time. Brief times away, times with the Lord, times in private communion, certainly understandable. But we're not made to live that way constantly. We're just not. So don't believe the lie that you'll be able to thrive in isolation permanently. And some of you might think, well, I'm around a lot of people. That doesn't mean you're connected to them. So beware of being around a lot of people, but not close to anyone. Okay? Open your heart up. Open your life. Look to see how you can meet needs to others. And there's great blessing that comes with that. It's not easy, but there's great blessing that comes from that. 1 John 1.7 tells us that when we're saved by the blood of Christ, one of the things that he does when he saves us is he brings us into fellowship, not just with him, but with one another. It's the goodness of God to give us one another. You might not always think that. You might look at others around you and think, like Pastor Josh prayed earlier, they're obstacles, they're in the way, they're difficulties. But I hope through this passage you could see that the, the others that God's put in your place are actually blessings. They're blessings to be stewarded, cared for, enjoyed. So Solomon's solution is that two are better than one. And then we come to a second problem. Not the easiest problem to understand for us, 21st century readers. Second problem, success together still fades into loneliness. Success together still fades into loneliness. This is the picture of a wise youth who rises up to advise an old king, to give an older king some enlightenment. The youth who advises the king brings blessings to the people, and yet, this wisdom and popularity won't last forever. 
even this wise youth who's a blessing to people and appreciated by the people, they'll turn and focus on someone else and his popularity will wane, this youth. Now note, this passage is not speaking of the youth as a usurper of the king's throne, and I'll explain that to you in a moment. Okay, this is not just a wise youth that takes over the king's throne. This is a youth who is advising a king who might not understand all the wisdom that the youth has, and he serves the king, counsels the king, and there's thriving under the king. Solomon's logic here is that youth is advising the king and therefore blessing the people, but will again be forgotten himself. Now, I want you to think about Joseph and Daniel. Solomon seems to be looking at those two young men, wise men. You know that Solomon's all about wisdom. Solomon looks to the wisdom of Joseph, who is in prison, and we see the language of prison coming up here in this passage. He's in prison. He doesn't grow up in a royal family. He's in prison. He's brought out of prison. He's wise. He can tell what, what this dream means for Pharaoh. And the people, people also spoken of in this passage, are blessed, are helped. Think of Daniel, kind of a nobody, but then he's raised to prominence in Babylon and gives understanding, wisdom to Nebuchadnezzar who doesn't have all the enlightenment he needs, doesn't have all the understanding he needs. That's what's happening here. Better was a poor and wise youth, verse 13, than an old foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. That may be better translated who doesn't know how to be enlightened, needs information. Again, think Joseph, think Daniel. Think of, in each of their instances, leaders above them who are wealthy, powerful, strong, wise kings who have these dreams and they need enlightenment. What is this dream about? And then you have these poor, wise youths who can tell these kings what they need to know. Better to be Joseph than Pharaoh. Better to be Daniel than Nebuchadnezzar. This young one's got wisdom. And the king doesn't have this enlightenment. Both Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar received warnings about the future, but were unable to interpret them. Did not know how to be enlightened. The preacher of Ecclesiastes is saying that it's better to be Joseph than Pharaoh and better to be Daniel than Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 14, for he went from prison to the throne. Who's that speaking of? A Joseph-like figure, a Daniel-like figure. And the writer here is just simply saying that this is a poor, wise youth who went through from prison to the throne and ended up being a blessing to the people that the king ruled over. So it's focusing on their, uh, this youth's advice to this king, the blessing that he is to this king and therefore to the people. So this is Solomon saying, hey, there is some success when there's wisdom and you work together, but that will be short-lived also. All is vanity. This is Ecclesiastes. Even when we think things are going to work together, we got this wise young advisor who's telling the king what he needs to know and we're actually thriving People were rescued from famine in Egypt because of Joseph's advice to the king. And it was a blessing, not just to people of Egypt, but even throughout the world. There's blessing here. This is good. 
Daniel telling Nebuchadnezzar what he needs to know, and Nebuchadnezzar wishing peace, actually giving an edict of peace in Daniel chapter 3 to the rest of the world. So the, the world can thrive because of just a Daniel figure, a poor wise youth who goes from prison to go and advise the king. And we see this and we go, this is good. And Solomon says, yeah, I know it's good. They're working together, but that doesn't last either. Verse 14, for he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. Again, Joseph in Genesis 41 was over all of Pharaoh's house and all the people. Daniel in, Neb- in uh, Daniel 6, Nebuchadnezzar placed him above his whole kingdom. So this is a youth, not usurping the throne, but really sitting next to the king on the throne as it were. He's seen as ruling with him. Verse 15, I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. So he's looking at all the people under the sun. And again, like I mentioned, in Joseph's narrative, in Daniel's narrative, in both instances, you get that these advisors were helping the king and that didn't just help the people that they ruled over, it actually spread out to other peoples and other nations. So Solomon sees all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place, who was the second to the king, with the king, and the king would ultimately fade out into the background and that youth would still be there. And that's what happened with both Joseph and Daniel. They outlived that first king that they served. And then verse 16 says this, there was no end to all the people, all of whom he led. There's great blessing happening to all these people. Yet, and here's the downer, because it seems to be good so far. Young, wise, person helping the king, showering blessings on their nation and beyond. This is wonderful. Here we go. But here's the wah, wah, wah. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him, the youth. Surely this also is vanity and striving after wind. It's interesting as we've gone through the Joseph narrative in Genesis You see Joseph going from prison to advise the king, bringing blessing, not just upon the people of Egypt, but beyond. And then Exodus 1 starts with this language. There is no, uh, I'm sorry, Exodus 1. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know about Joseph. Joseph's influence waned, went away. There were glory days, this advisor and this king And then the influence went away. Daniel loses his influence by the time he begins serving King Darius. And there's a plot hatched to where he gets thrown in the lion's den. Now we understand the Lord rescuing him from that, but he's lost his influence. So success together still fades into loneliness. This reminds us of what we read in Ecclesiastes 1. There is no remembrance of former people. Some of you have that translation, former things in your Bible, things or people. Same kind of idea. There's the good parts of the past. Remember those days? Uh, not remember, I don't really remember them anymore. And even if I do, the next generation or two will forget. There's no remembrance of former people, nor will there be any remembrance of later people yet to be among those who come after. And this here in chapter 4 is an illustration of that. Even the Josephs, the Daniels, even you and your success, you had a thriving ministry at one point. 
Remember back in the 30s when you and those families would go on that mission trip and so much happened, and now you sit here and it seems like everyone's forgotten that. What use am I now? This is kind of what happens in life sometimes. The team that you were on, the government that you led, the ministry you were a part of really influenced people, and now nobody seems to remember. Think of the elderly person who lived an extraordinary life, was part of a group that blessed many, maybe part of a church that blessed many. Maybe they were full of wisdom. They gave great advice. They made great decisions. People used to try to schedule time with them to learn things, to be helped. And now nobody seems to remember or even know about their previous life. You sit in your chair and the grandkids come over, but they don't even think to ask about your previous life. You've still got this wisdom in your head, but nobody seems to want to tap into it. The influence isn't there. Just sit alone, thinking about those good old days, but they've gone. There was wisdom. There was prosperity. But now there's just loneliness. Seems to be short-lived. This is often what it feels like under the sun. Think of Paul. Thriving ministry, preaching, people being converted, churches being built up, shining the glory of Christ, showing and demonstrating the love of God. Paul moving people here and there and raising up people, seeing people saved. And in 2 Timothy 4 saying, all have left me. Similar to what Solomon's talking about. Think of our Lord, Mark chapter 5, Jesus sending out two by two, giving them authority to heal, to preach, and people will repent, and that's happening. And they come back in chapter 5, verse 30, look at all that we've done and taught. Things are happening. And then the night before he would die, he's in the garden surrounded by his friends, and all of his friends flee like cockroaches when the light comes on. And he dies, as it were, alone, with just a few followers at the foot of the cross when all the others have fled. Our Lord knows what the writer of Ecclesiastes is talking about. And let me say this to you. If you feel alone, maybe are alone, I want to give you this encouragement. You were once part of a healthy family, vibrant ministry, vibrant church. You've seemed to lost, have lost friendships. I want to give you this word of comfort from Paul's example. Again, I told you, in 2 Timothy 4, he says, all have left me. Listen to what he says. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Paul's not holding a grudge. And then he says this, such sweet words. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Friend, I hope you hear that. Friend who feels alone. The Lord never leaves. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. What a good God. God will never wrong you. God will never distance himself from you, stiff arm you. The Lord is always near. 
So I hope you receive that word of encouragement, even from the Apostle Paul. And maybe I'd also give you just a word of advice as well, if you feel alone. Abide with your Lord. Stay close to Him. Find strength and encouragement from 2 Timothy 4, 17. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So commune with your Lord. And then I encourage you. You might not feel others lifting you up. But after receiving encouragement from your Lord, look to see if there's anyone that you can lift up. There might not be someone comforting you, but is there someone that you could bring comfort to in the name of Christ? There might not be someone protecting you, but is there someone that you can protect? Now, so far, this is a great Jewish sermon. I mean, rabbis would agree with almost all of what I've said so far. But we're Christians. What difference is there then? Where is their new covenant hope here? How do Christians who know of Jesus' ministry, which came after Solomon, how are we encouraged? Three closing realities for the Christian. And in bringing out these realities, I'll turn to Ephesians chapter 2. You can go there with me. Ephesians chapter 2, you know the famous passage, and many of you have, have memorized it. We're dead in trespasses and sins, children of wrath, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even we are dead in our trespasses, verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, raised us up with Him in the heavenly places. We often think about that in individual terms, don't we? Yes, that's my testimony. That's true. But there's a lot of we language there, raised us up with him. So we learn about our testimony of salvation from Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, if you're a Christian, is your testimony. The circumstances might be different, but that's our testimony. And I want you to notice (coughs) that when Christ saves us, he joins us together. Ephesians 2.11, therefore remember, speaking largely to a Gentile audience, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. You're called the uncircumcised ones by the Jews, he's saying. The circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated or alone from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. You're with God. You're together with Him. Brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who's made us both one and has broken down in this flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He looks at the Gentiles and says, you 
didn't have the Scriptures written to you. You didn't have the promises. You didn't have the covenants. But God, in His mercy, has brought you near, not just to Him, brought you near to His covenant people, and together now you are a covenant people. He's brought the two together to be one, His people. It's beautiful because you can't get farther apart than Jew and Gentile. And here he shows that there is something greater than a Jew-Gentile division. It's the precious blood of Christ, the sacrificial death of Christ that is given to both of them. Both of them receive forgiveness of sin. Both of them get his righteousness. He brings them together as one now. So Solomon is saying there's a problem when you're alone. And even when it works out for a while, it still doesn't last forever. And Christ comes and dies for Jews and Gentiles and Italians and Romanians and South Africans. And he brings them together into an eternal family. There's no, there's no brevity to that. There's no temporary nature to that. The family of God is eternal. So Jesus has brought us near to God, and Jesus has brought us near to each other. And I do think <coughs> that oftentimes we as Christians can belittle one of the great gifts that God has given us. Even I, even today, might have, might have said things like, God has saved you and brought you together with other people in this church. And your thought, you don't have to tell me this, you don't have to admit it to me, okay, you can tell God later. Your thought is, yeah, but no, I don't really like these people. Or, ah, but there are this and that. And you're thinking of the warts, you're thinking of the problems, but Jesus still has saved us to be together. That's why there's so many passages in the New Testament about forbearing and working together and seeking reconciliation, pursuing reconciliation, because he's made something special here. And it's important for us to line up our affections with what God has given us, not to just simply say, yeah, I don't think that's a great gift, God. When it comes to the people of God and even your family and friends, you don't get to open God's gift and say, yeah, I don't think you gave me the best gift. He only gives good gifts. Listen to Jesus praying the night before he died. He prayed for the people who would believe in the Lord because of the disciples' word, because of the apostles' word, their message of hope, salvation. He prayed that we may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our evangelism and the credibility of Christianity stands on how unified we are with one another and how much we love one another. So let's not look at the gift God has given us in one another and say, yeah, but I don't really like that gift. We don't get to criticize God's gifts. So Jesus has brought us near to God. Jesus has brought us near to each other. And then the third and final closing reality for the Christian is Jesus eternally cares for his own. Let me say it this way. You're never alone. You're never alone. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There are too many passages. I, I, 
I had so many listed on showing the, the care that God gives a new covenant believer. Jesus, the good shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep. No one will snatch them out of my hand. You can go on and on. God has clearly committed himself forever to the Christian. So brother or sister, you might feel alone. You're not alone. You're never alone. You've always got the living God of the universe and his son communing with you, loving you, keeping you. Jesus lived a perfect life to give to others. His merit is our merit. Jesus was executed on behalf of others. His death to the penalty of sin is our death to the penalty of sin. Jesus rose again and has power over death. His life is our life. Jesus makes us children of God and brothers and sisters to one another. We are never alone. So friend, if you haven't, turn to Jesus for forgiveness of your sin, turn to Jesus for his righteousness, and turn to Jesus for a family. Not a perfect family, but a loved family who's committed to loving one another. I think of the lyrics of this Sovereign Grace song. Jesus, friend of sinners, loved me before I knew him, drew me with his cords of love, tightly bound me to him. Round my heart still closely twined the ties that none can sever. For I am his and he is mine forever and forever. Christians are not alone. Let's pray. Father, we'll start by thanking you for your commitment to us demonstrated in the death and resurrection of your son. Thank you for communicating to us that you are ours forever. We are yours. Father, I pray that we would look out and see family, friends, our fellow church members, and see them as gifts from you, gifts to steward and to care for, to protect, to guide, to lead, to nurture, to love, to be patient with, to forgive, to forbear with. Give us a greater appreciation of the others that you've given us as we remember your goodness to us and your commitment to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.